you know, you can go fast, but you're going to go alone and you're going to have a lot of people on and off that bus. And unfortunately, there are going to be some people feel like I got run over by the bus. But if you want to go together as a team, it's going to take longer, but it's going to be more sustainable in the long run. Hey friends, it's hard to believe we're already halfway through January. And I know January is the time when you've got new fresh dreams and ideas and energy. Your team is processing, taking next steps and big risks. And we want to help you do that. We've got a couple ways that our team at Stay Forth can help you do that. Number one, our journal. You heard about it in November and in December and in early January, but we want to make sure we continue to share what a great tool this is for goal planning and just for every single day progress on whatever your big goals are. It's a three-month journey, and this right-side-up journal takes you through about five to 10 minutes a day of goal planning that can really translate into productive days, uh, more clarity, less overwhelm, and then about a 30-minute session each week that has you look back at last week, look ahead at this week, and this tool did not exist. I did not see a journal that actually worked for high-capacity kingdom leaders, so we went ahead and created it. I use it every morning, and we love it, and if you want to buy the leather sleeve with it, it looks and feels amazing. Another way you can do that is through coaching. You're hearing more and more about coaching this week. We've got our double espresso coaching sessions coming up the next few days. If you can't commit to a full round of 10 tools and 10 sessions coaching that we normally offer for leaders, then maybe you say, I'm going to dip my toe in the water. And for a discounted rate, you're going to get one session and a few tools that are going to help you win this year. And you may just say, I need a goal planning tool. We've got tools and resources for you over on stayforth.com backslash resources. We want to help you start this year well. well. Guys, we've got a great conversation today with my friend, Tim Lucas. I met Tim a long time ago at a dinner and Tim and I uh, hit it off. He and his wife, Colleen, were there and we were talking about their life and their ministry. And as their church continues to grow, there's a growing complexity there. And so as we began to talk and kind of follow up about that, Tim inquired about coaching. And I had the honor of walking alongside Tim as his leadership coach and to see some of the new growth that's happening, some of the complexity to be able to process that in his own leadership, uh, as well as as in the life of the church. So it is it has been a great joy. I'm going to go out and spend some time with their staff uh, at Liquid Church later this year. And so he came out with a book, Liquid Church. Their church is also called Liquid Church. And he pokes some fun at the name in this uh, podcast episode. He tells the story, how the heck they got started in the Northeast. Guys, they're right outside of New York City. And they have just a, an incredibly unique story of how this church has grown and developed. It includes mergers, multi-generations. We talk about so much in this episode, so we don't want to waste your precious time. We're going to go ahead and get to this interview with Tim Lucas. Well, guys, as always, we love letting you in on conversations that we're already having that are unfolding and I have loved getting to know our guest today, Tim Lucas. Tim comes to us from Jersey. So, Tim, welcome to the podcast, man. Alan, great to be with you, my friend. Greetings from the promised land of Bon Jovi. And <laughs> is that what Bear, they call it? The promised <laughs> land? I thought I lived in the promised land. Never well, mind. You do. When I get when I get, you know, we're squeezed here. We're right outside of Times Square, Manhattan, New York City where everything is paved, <laughs> everything is concrete. But I fly out to Colorado 
And uh, when I go up in the mountains with you, I say, man, I'm home, Jesus. Somebody has to be out there. <laughs> Hi, uh, Tim. It's been awesome uh, getting to know you. I met Tim a couple months ago with his amazing bride, Colleen, and um, just sat next to each other at dinner, struck up a conversation, and man, I just loved hearing the ongoing story of Liquid Church. And uh, today we're going to talk about your book, Liquid Church, but um, the church that you founded is called Liquid, which uh, I absolutely love the name. You don't forget that. It's so unique, uh, what God is doing there. And just a special story is really unfolded. So uh, you talk about it as kind of an accidental church and kind of an accidental church plant. So take us back. You have mismatched chairs and some 20-somethings down in the basement of a church. What were you guys thinking? Yeah, God tricked us into planting this church. I had no interest in being a pastor. I am the accidental pastor and the accidental church planter for sure. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, and actually it's quite a beautiful state, all joking aside. Um, but my wife and I met out in college at Wheaton College, right outside of Chicago. And so I grew up in this kind of like, you know, very small, kind of conservative Bible church, kind of a holy huddle, you know, about the same 100 and 150 people really all growing up. And I was over church. I burnt out. So I kind of like skipped chapel in college and stuff. And then I meet my wife, Colleen, who grew up at a Pentecostal storefront church in the Bronx. <laughs> so I, I like to say like my family, we were like the frozen chosen, but her family was like happy clappy. <laughs> it's a great uh, combo. It fits together so well. Like as I meet you guys, I just go, yep, God knew. And God just was laughing, I think, before you met Colleen. Yeah, it's like we cross streams, you know? And so Liquid is, we're a non-denominational church, but you know, uh, I like to say we're like Bapticostal, you know, <laughs> we are wide open to the Holy Spirit, but we got a seatbelt because uh, the childcare workers get crunchy when the service goes more than 90 minutes. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, it's funny, liquid is improbable in this sense. So my wife, Colleen and I, we start when we came back to New York, we started attending a little storefront or not storefront, but it was a, a church plant at the time meeting in Hunter College. It was called Redeemer Presbyterian Church. <laughs> you might have heard of it. Yeah, this unknown guy, Tim Keller. Who is he? Uh, the C.S. Lewis of our generation. <laughs> and that was really formational for us, Alan, because that was the first time I saw somebody holding up not just the scriptures, high view of scriptures in one hand, but in the other hand, he had the New York Times, you know, including the arts and leisure. And he was connecting the two, building a bridge, you know, from the world of the Bible to like, hey, 21st century New York City, you know, um, and that was just the first time we saw that kind of really model of ministry, really culturally engaged. And so to say we started Liquid based on that, well, it was a huge factor, but we went, uh, we were living in New Jersey, commuting into the city on Sundays. And we said, you know what? We were having kids. And it was like, it's time to kind of, you know, put down roots where we are. And so we attended a 150 year old Baptist church. It was the name of it was Millington Baptist church. And of course, all our friends are like, you go to Militant Baptist Church, <laughs> right? And uh, and that's where God intervened. The senior pastor, it was an older church, a lot of Q-tips and Q-balls in the congregation, white hair, bald heads, you know, 60s, 70s. And so they saw us come walk in their door. We're in our 20s. And they said, hey, would you teach a Sunday school class for the 20-somethings? And uh, we looked around. We're like, are there other 20-somethings? Yes, eight of them. <laughs> where <laughs> are they? Out. Yeah, so that's how Liquid Church started. We just started, you know, doing this uh, basically a Sunday school class in this, you know, classic, 
you know, Baptist church basement, cinder block walls, stale coffee. But what was unique about it, um, I think, was that they gave us freedom. So we kind of threw out the fill in the blank, you know, Bible studies that Sunday schools sometimes I think are known for. And we said, can we just talk in a raw and very real way about, you know, the messiness of relationships and career and calling and how's God designed you? What has he wired you to do? What's the story he's writing with your life? Which is not necessarily innovative, but I think people appreciated the fact that it was unscripted. And so people began inviting their non-Christian friends and coworkers. And so, you know, Liquid launched out of that. It wasn't a church split, but we outgrew the church at about 300 people. And with the blessing of that Baptist church, we launched out in 2007 uh, on Easter Sunday, started as an independent church. We had enough money to last about, gosh, three months, I think. And we made every mistake in the book. I write about this, you know, and I think people just learn more from uh, mistakes, honestly, than people's successes. Agreed. Uh, but, but, but the Holy Spirit just has, um, we've just, it's been like a roller coaster ride following him. You know, we've had a, a bit of a rocket ship ride. So we're a multi-site church, seven locations, reach about 5,000 people on a weekend. And Tim, when I think about the story of Liquid, um, the, the word unique just keeps coming up because people would say, you know, you can't do that outside of Jersey or in Jersey, right outside of New York City. That's not going to work there. Um, you've had mergers. And um, you've been able to both be honest and honoring. And so honest in the way that you guys present truth and, and communicate it, but honoring of where you've come from and that church and the gray hairs that really launched you out. Um, it's just a, an incredible story that's unfolding. And we're going to move through um, what you call those six powerful currents um, that you and uh, Dr. Warren Bird write about in the book. Uh, but th the uniqueness is not lost on us. And the first time I heard you share about it, I thought, man, that's that's not what you would expect um, coming outside of Jersey. Talk a little bit about some of the challenges there of both being, you know, right outside of New York City and being in a place that that is not well known for church growth strategies. Just say that. What are some of the challenges of of being there in Jersey before we talk about some of the beautiful things God's done through that? Well, the liquid metaphor, I think, you know, really fits our context. Um, you know, I think when people hear the name liquid church. They assume we're either a cult or a drinking fraternity. And, uh, you know, it's like, well, you're definitely wrong on the first one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the second one, question. <laughs> well, the reality is, you know, we named it Liquid for a simple reason, right? Jesus meets that thirsty woman at the well and he says, hey, whoever believes in me is, you know, rivers of living water will bubble up from within you. And so this idea of living water, that church should be refreshing. That is not a word people in the Northeast would associate with church. Uh, dry, boring, stale, crusty, crusty. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but right, the Northeast, in particular, the East Coast where we are, you know, was kind of a hotbed of revival in the 1700s. You know, they kind of great awakenings bubbled up here, you know, in Whitfield and Asbury. And but the reality is, it's like we're in a post Christian context now. People are like, those wells have run dry. This is a graveyard for churches here on the East Coast. and uh, But we're like, you know what? Graveyard is the place you want to be if you want to witness a resurrection. And so okay. at Liquid, we're kind of like, hey, how can we take a fluid approach to faith, recognizing we're not going to water down the gospel, but a new generation needs new wineskins to carry that message. Yep. And so, you know, that Liquid metaphor, you know, the book Liquid Church, it's based on this prophecy from Ezekiel 47. And 
this is one that you know maybe some in your community would be familiar with. It's it's a passage. I, I think it's one of those you're reading your devotions like, well, that's kind of cool, sort of weird, not sure what it means, whatever. Um, and I'd skipped over it before, but the Lord just kind of opened my eyes to it in a new way. Basically, Ezekiel has this divine vision where he sees the temple um, in Jerusalem, and it's leaking water. Like literally, there's water flowing down the steps of the temple. In other words, it's a liquid church, right? You get it? <laughs> I see what and, you did there. Yeah, I see. But here's what's crazy. It's like, this is the strange part, is God sends this angel, kind of shows Ezekiel, who must have been like, hey, did the pipes burst? You know, uh, you know what's happening here? And as he goes further away from the church into this river flowing out of it, at first it's up to his ankles. And then he goes a little bit farther, then it's up to his knees, then it's up to his waist. Now, Alan, I know you're an outdoorsman, and I never caught this because being from concrete Jersey, but typically rivers are deepest at their headwaters. But this river of living water out of the church in Ezekiel 47, the deeper it goes, the farther it flows. In other words, the farther away you get from the church, the deeper you get in the Holy Spirit. And so I'm reading this incredible prophecy, and it says everything this river touches that's dead comes back to life. So it actually flows into the Dead Sea, and it says all of a sudden these fish are swarming in the sea, and there's fruit trees along the banks producing fruit, and dead things are coming back to life. And so it's really a picture, a prophecy, of the New Testament church flowing powerfully in the Holy Spirit. And, you know, for us as a church called Liquid, <laughs> and uh, of course, Jesus says, whoever is thirsty, come, you know, living water. And by this, he meant the Holy Spirit. I think the Lord is doing a new work in a lot of churches, and they may not look conventional. Uh, you know, again, Liquid Church, it's a, a, people are like, in New Jersey, of all things, they kind of give us the Nazareth this, you know, they're like, Nazareth, what good can come from Nazareth, you know, <laughs> New Jersey. <laughs> but we're like, oh, man, this is where the Holy Spirit's doing a new thing. And so we really identified these six, what we call currents, kind of ministry currents, not just in our church, but with my co-author, uh, Dr. Warren Bird, he did national research. And so we identify over three dozen churches where the Holy Spirit is doing something new and fresh and innovative, but we're actually seeing it's not just an anecdote. There's a trend happening in the larger church to reach millennials and Gen Z for Christ with the new wineskins of the gospel. Oh, I love it. Well, and we're going to we're gonna bust into those six currents in, in just a minute. But I love how you describe this in the book, Tim, this guerrilla mindset approach to ministry. Many times it's, well, why should we do that? And you guys really asking, especially in those early days, why not? Why not give it a shot? And just that risk um, that's part of the DNA of the church. What are just a couple of the defining risks that you took in those early days? Oh, yeah. I don't know if these were wise or I'd recommend them. <laughs> but I, I do love the guerrilla mindset that kind of birthed them. I mean, in the early days, we said, you know what? Even though we don't have a lot of money and we should be focusing all on Sundays, we said we have to be a church that exists for the good of the community. Um, you know, so many churches, it's kind of about building, you know, well, you know, our programs, et cetera. But we were just like, you know, Jesus had this heart for people on the fringe, you know, the poor. And so who were that for us? You know, whether it's single moms or we were, you know, when we first launched out, our church office was basically in this kind of crack den section of town uh, with immigrants stacked, you know, eight, eight people to a, a single uh, studio apartment. And so we said, you know what, we're going to call off church on some Sundays and go be the church. 
And so, again, I don't know if that was wise stewardship. You know, now our executive pastor would be like, well, how are people going to receive the offering? Sure. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think God blessed that because we just had this open-handed mentality that we're like, hey, we want to go from our seats to the streets. And, you know, I grew up in a church where, again, it was a little bit more of a sit and soak kind of mentality. Well, you come, do your time on Sunday, and then, you know, gather with the holy huddle maybe Wednesday night. But we're like, we want to go out. So I remember one Sunday, we just felt like God calling us to reach out. New Jersey actually has a, a pretty large LGBTQ population, and they have a pretty large gay pride parade in Asbury Park, uh, right across from the Stone Pony where, where Bruce Springsteen uh, kind of cut his teeth. And so, you know, we said, hey, what would it be like if, you know, historically the church has been known as kind of, you know, you know, Bible bashing kind of homophobes. And at the end of the day, wherever you fall on that, historically the church, and I'm talking capital C, has been a source of pain and rejection, you know, for, for gay folks. And so we said, I mean, this is so funny. It seems, it sounded revolutionary at the time. Now you're just like, are you kidding me? So we called off church and said, what if we go hand out bottled water, ice cold water, at the gay pride festival. And they were like, the organizers were like, wait a minute, it's evangelicals. This must be a Trojan horse. They're going to come and tell us we're going to hell or try to convert us and hand out. It's tracks. a trap. It's, it's a, a trap. trap. <laughs> Admiral Akbar. It's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they were, they were certain that was going to happen. And we said, no, we're actually here because Jesus is changing us <laughs> and realizing, oh, there's self-righteousness and sexual brokenness in my own life as a raging heterosexual. But so we just want to come and hand out, you know, cold water because Jesus says, you know, love people who are on the fringe. And, and so we tried to do it in that humility. And then, of course, we get hit with rocks from the other side, you know, other churches that were like, well, wait a minute, you're not going out to convert. We're not, we're not converting anybody. We're just to show Jesus's love, no strings attached. And so, you know, that was a pretty big risk, you know, for a young church plant. That kind of thing can tank you. But the Lord blessed us with that outreach because, uh, you know, the day we did it, we canceled church and we had two 18-wheelers filled with bottled water. Uh, and our people drove all the way down the Jersey Shore and we're going to hand out this water. The very last minute, the organized parade said, nope, we don't trust you. We just don't trust Christians. And so here we are talking about egg on your face. we got all these people. We canceled church and all this water. Well, we just said, you know what? We're going to be polite, hand out water to people outside of it, and just pray for people and bless them and, and show grace and kindness. But wouldn't you know it, that day, uh, the Lord raised the temperature to about 98 degrees <laughs> with 120% humidity. And um, it was amazing because about midday, the organizer prayed, came to us and said, hey, Pastor Tim, um, we're wondering if we can borrow some bottled water because we have a troop of drag queens backstage uh, who actually have passed out. <laughs> they're hyper, they're, they're dehydrated and they're hyperventilating. And would you be willing to serve some bottled water to drag queens? And of course we were like, yes, sir. And we, <laughs> you know, our pastors wheeled, I'll never forget that our pastors, our pastoral staff with hand trucks of bottled water going backstage to serve these drag queens. It was like a modern day foot washing kind of thing. And it was just a beautiful moment that I think, you know, Again, we're a little bit larger now, and that would be harder maybe to organize. But I'm like, man, I don't want to miss that. Uh, you know, I never want to become a caretaker as a leader. I want to be a risk taker for Christ. Like, I don't want to be afraid to go reach out in the margins, maybe be a little bit misunderstood or misinterpreted, or what's the message? And we're like, the message is simply love and kindness. Um, even though we're a church that values grace and truth, right? Jesus came full of the Father, grace and truth. And so um, we always say, you know, we're closed handed about the message. The gospel never changes. You know, we need salvation through Jesus Christ, but we're open handed about our methods. 
the way that we have a winsome witness in our world has to change because people just speak in sound bites and they're preaching to the choir and, you know, our culture's never been more, you know, polarized. So we're like, how can we kind of upset the apple cart a little bit and maybe create a new dialogue, create a new question and say, well, who does this? No strings attached kind of love. And we still have friends there from, uh, from that day. And I, I love what you're saying. And many times we lose that risk. I mean, I've worked with church planners for, man, over a decade. And that's one thing that I love is you don't start a church by asking, how was it done before? Or just why should we do that? But it's why not? Why not give it a shot? And that risk is contagious and many times polarizes, right? There's some people that yeah. just aren't ready, like you say, for the for the new wineskins. A uh, mutual friend of ours, Daniel Fusco, has come on the podcast and he talks a lot about posture and says, even if people don't like what you're saying or agree with it, it's yeah. the posture that is That's winsome right. to them. And I see that as the posture. We'll talk about creative communication, even just how you guys are trying to winsomely um, communicate both grace and, grace and truth. So many people have um, to learn to learn from that today. So just admire how you guys do that. Um, so let's kind of bust into these six currents. That first current you talk about in the book is ministry to special needs families. What has God done in your church through special needs families? Uh, that's one of the most beautiful, you know, Holy Spirit inspired uh, things that's happened in our, our twelve years as a church. You know, we we ha- we're planners. We have strategic plans, but you know what? This was a beautiful. The best things are unplanned, and I think come out of pain in a, a leader's life. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but New Jersey has the highest rate of autism in the nation. Um, nationally, it's like one in 59 kids here in New Jersey, it's about one in 34. And, um, and so we had more and more families with special needs coming to our church. And there was a young boy, uh, Ethan, who was nonverbal. He actually used a a computer to kind of text his responses. And, And the mom was like, you know, what do you, what do you have for our son? And most churches have a heart to help, you know, special needs families, but they just don't have the horsepower because it requires one-on-one caregiving. Sure. And, uh, and so honestly, we were a young church plan. We're like, well, we promise we're not going to lose them. <laughs> you know, we'll return them at the end of the service, you know, glorified babysitting. And yeah. she was like, I think we can do better. And incredibly, I think God just anointed Susie as her name. She's now a pastor on our staff, but she began kind of this vision for one-on-one buddies. And so trained caregivers who would work one-on-one with a child. So if they're nonverbal autistic, they'd actually learn in the, the language that connects with their hearts and mind because these kids have a spiritual capacity. Um, it's, we don't want babysitting. We actually want to show them the love of Jesus and lodge an anchor in their heart about the love of the Father. And so incredibly, Alan, as I talk about in the book, um, guess who responded to that? You know, one-on-one caregiving. Well, how does that scale? You know, we barely can get, you know, most pastors are like, I can't get one volunteer for the entire fifth grade. Well, it was the millennials who raised their hand and were the first to volunteer, all the 20-somethings in our church, because they're the justice generation. And so they grew up with inclusive classrooms, inclusive workplaces, and, and they were like, yeah, heck yeah, I'll work. And so uh, uh, there's this one young gal, uh, Katie, who is, uh, works one-on-one with a young boy named Grady, who Katie and Grady, and she sees him every week, has worked with him for multiple years in a row. He has Down syndrome and ADHD. And so they've been rejected at three different churches because Grady's uh, you know, disability has been treated, honestly, like a behavior problem. Well, they drive 90 minutes to our church because a mom, Aaron, said, hey, Church Alive is worth the drive because my husband and I, we get an hour to 90 minutes of respite where we just can sit in the service, hold hands, and know that Grady is being loved on by Katie. 
not just uh, in a babysitting way, but really, you know, teaching, sharing him the love of Christ and, and making him feel valued and included and of worth. And so, you know, it's kind of cool, but uh, earlier this spring, and I talk about this in the book, but uh, Grady's mom called me and said, you know, hey, I just have to tell you, Tim, we haven't just found a home at Liquid. Grady has found some healing. I said, what, what's that? Well, he has never spoken a complete sentence in his life. 10 years old, he has verbal apraxia, which means his, the speech thoughts in his head can't be translated on his tongue. Well, Tim, he spoke his first sentence on Saturday night. I said, that's incredible. He said, you know what he said? I want to go to church. Mm. That was the first sentence Grady ever spoke. Mm. And so we were just like, what a beautiful thing. Like Jesus is among us. I think the church is at its best when it says, hey, the kingdom of heaven, the last shall be first. In other words, those who are typically overlooked or marginalized in the world or can't give back because, hey, it doesn't scale and it's not efficient. Shouldn't the church be the first place it says, and that's where we're going to start. And so our, our special needs ministry has grown by 400%. It's completely word of mouth. And now we're doing monthly respite nights where special needs families come drop off all of their children, actually, not just their child with disability, but their typical brothers and sisters. We take care of them, play games four hours, and mom and dad get to go out for dinner, a movie, shopping. We're like, go take a blessed nap for all we care. We want you to come back replenished. Yep. And knowing your kids are going to be cared for. So it's just been a beautiful outreach that the Holy Spirit has inspired. It's one of those powerful ministry currents in the Liquid Church book that we talk about how you can take steps to get involved. Oh, I love it. I love it. We uh, attend an event every year that's that's a walk um, for those with Down syndrome. And it's, I mean, it's like a party. And one family said to me, this is our favorite day of the year. It's like Christmas for our family. And I could just Without imagine question. if that's each week. There's someone who's in the struggle with you who who gets it and says, go rest. We want to refresh and, and replenish you. One thing, Tim, that I loved about the book, which you and Warren did, was highlighting other churches, saying it's not just us. Here are other churches within the stream. So I thought even that was worth the read alone, just to say that here's our story. Here are the risks we took. Here's how it doesn't scale. Love doesn't scale at the most uh, one-to-one uh, ratio. That's where it's most powerful, but that there are there are other churches sort of riding this wave. So love it. Um, current number two, creative communication. Why is creative commu- communication so rare in most churches? Well, you know, we're still kind of coasting on the Reformation's um, model of a sermon, which is a college lecture style, right? Uh, gifted communicator or slash scholar comes, holds forth on a biblical passage for 45 minutes. And basically it's a one-way monologue. Um, but our kids are coming of age in a TGIF world, uh, is what I call it in the Liquid Church book, a TGIF, Twitter, Google, iPhone, Facebook. <laughs> yep. You know, it's like Instagram is the currency now, and it's a visual medium. Two things. It's no longer monologue. It's dialogue. I tweet something, you clap back, and then we forward it to a friend. And so that's, you know, again, I have a couple of screenagers that we're raising here at home. Uh, I got a sophomore and a senior in high school, and they just grew up with screens. Now, for us as a church, screens, that's kind of for us the new stained glass, you know, of the 21st century. Um, We have our main campus where I preach live, but then we're a multi-site church. So we have six other locations where the sermon is actually broadcast high definition on a giant movie screen. And that's actually where we're seeing some of our biggest growth at those campuses. You know, people are can be very cynical, like, oh, I don't know if I, 
I'd like in-person preaching, you know. Well, the, the reality is now we're like the Holy Spirit travels through pixels. Who knew? Um, people forget after about the first three minutes. And so we're a visually literate generation. I mean, the more and more, the millennials and Gen Z in particular, and when you marry an image to our word-based approach and you marry that to an emotion, a story, it burns in people's brains and they remember it forever. So it's not about just props or gimmicks, but it's actually about saying, hey, we're undergoing a tectonic shift in communication culture. And if preachers now aren't thinking TGIF, how can I make this sermon not just sticky, but create actually a, a dialogical approach and a visual approach because we're post-literate. It's not enough anymore to have a good, homiletically correct, word-based sermon. You have to be able to exegete images to connect with our visual culture. A friend of mine says this, Tim. He says, if you want to reach people nobody else is reaching, you got to do things nobody else is doing. And many times we would nod at that, but these things are risks that you are going to take some shots probably from other churches thinking, oh, you've moved away from this and the the method can scare some people. We need to be talking more about creative communication. Some of the things I see on Instagram stories are brilliant and yet we won't touch them with a 10 foot pole because we think, no, that's, you know, that's too much to ask, or I don't know how that fits in a sermon. Um, so keep taking those risks. We again have talked about that multiple times here on the podcast. We have to take risks in how we communicate. People are going to hear what we are trying to communicate. I love that. Next, next stream, you talk about embracing compassionate causes and you guys have really pushed into the water thing. It makes a lot of sense that you guys pushed into the water piece, but you guys have drilled, have drilled over 280 wells, um, started in Ethiopia and you challenge leaders to zero in on one particular cause. Why is that, Tim? I think there's compassion fatigue is a very real, um, danger right now and vulnerability for this generation. Um, this is what the probably the most cause oriented generation in history. Um, people make right their spending choices. Well, I'm not just buying shoes; I'm buying Tom shoes. Uh, you know, I, I'm buying these wood glasses because then they tra- you know plant a tree in the rainforest. It's not just good marketing. I mean, the, the church obviously is the biggest cause in the world; it's the cause of Christ. But the way that evangelism is happening now is people are wanting to find Christ we're finding they kind of come in through the side door of cause. So for us as a church, you know, helping bring clean drinking water, you know, to the world's poorest regions um, has been extremely powerful for us. Again, we're like, we want to not only proclaim the gospel in our word and our preaching, but we want to demonstrate it. Like, what is the goodness of this good news? Is it good news for someone living in the Ruhango district of Rwanda? And so incredibly, what we have found is, um, particularly with younger generations, is they say, I don't know if I'm going to buy into this Jesus thing yet. I don't even know if I'm going to attend your church. But I'm interested actually in going on the trip to Nicaragua to bring clean water, you know, to kids in, in, in that village. And so we say, you know what, That's a, we'll meet you there. We think it's a God thing, but you think it's a good thing. We'll swim to that island together because we're going to find that when we go and serve and roll up our hands and serve with the humility of Christ, it's just winsome. It's so infectious. So for us, compassionate cause at Liquid Church is the tip of our evangelism spear. And I think for, you know, to get to your question, Alan, we try to drill down deep on one cause. For us, it's clean drinking water, rather than blunt the impact by having a menu of different ministries. I don't know, have you ever taken Julie out to, um, uh, to eat at like the uh, Cheesecake Factory? 
I have. Does that make me a good husband, Tim? Is that like brownie points? <laughs> it's not a particular favorite of mine, and I'll tell you oh, why. Okay. If you ever go to Cheesecake Factory, beyond the fact it's kind of one of those eateries in the mall, you know, uh, it, I open up the menu and it's like, holy moly, it's yep. utterly overwhelming. Yep. It's like, I just like a Cobb salad. Well, you have 117 salads to choose from. <laughs> And there are multiple options. It is so overwhelming. And I think a lot of churches do that with their missions. They kind of give you this, this menu of ministries. It's like, hey, we're, we're, we're very passionate about you know, human trafficking in Thailand, uh, about fostering and orphan care. We're also into clean water. And uh, this week, we're going to be feeding the homeless. And, and if you ask people to care about everything, they end up caring actually about nothing. There's like you know, paralysis analysis. So what we did is in the book, in Liquid Church book, we spotlight multiple churches that have said, you know what? We are going to go through a season of Holy Spirit discernment and say, God, what is the one cause that you have uniquely wired our church to put our thumbprint on? Now for us at Liquid, it's clean drinking water. And it's been incredible because our people give extraordinary amount of their time, their money. They've given over $3 million to that, uh, drill those clean water wells. And you know, 280 wells over a few years, hey, we brought clean drinking water over 100,000 people. Well, there's a church called The Church At in Oklahoma, and they said, we're passionate about emptying the foster care shelter system in our city. And so they said, you know what? These other things are awesome causes, and we're going to help people who are doing that. But for us, it's all going to be about emptying the foster care shelter system. And guess what? Over five years, they actually did it in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, uh, under leadership, I think it's Pastor Alex Amaya. And incredibly, they said, we're going to run clinics. We're going to actually um, help our parents in the church and in the community who want to walk through, obviously, all the red tape and the the kind of the Byzantine process of moving from fostering to adopting. And they said, we're going to put all of our organizational weight behind that and make an impact to actually transform our city. And they did it. So for me, I'm like, man, that's it. That's That's the power of being very intentional and drilling down deep on one compassionate cause versus a menu of ministries. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we were talking briefly when, when we met, we were speaking at a conference and um, ran into and developed a relationship with Grant Skeldon, who Grant, we had on the podcast to talk specifically about millennials, the passion generation, his book. And he says, why is the most cause-oriented organism on the planet, the church, not connecting with the most cause-oriented generation right that on. has ever lived, which are millennials? And so what right I love on. is that as you guys push into these causes, it attracts. People are ready to live a life bigger than themselves. And many times we've made such a small ask that that's what we've gotten. So more and more stories that I love it. I want to move on to the fourth stream, mergers. This is an interesting conversation. Several of your campuses are mergers and and have come to you guys with an older property that's been there around 5 million bucks in um, real estate that's come to you guys through that. But why do so many merger processes fail? I hear about a lot of them, Tim, and they don't work. Why do you think so many fail? Yeah, in the Liquid Church book, you know, Warren Bird shares um, just the national research, right? One out of every three new multi-site campuses comes through a ministry merger. Um, For us, we call that a rebirth, and it's traditionally where an older ministry that's kind of gone through the life cycle, right? Because the church is in organism. It's not an organization. So there is this natural life cycle of, you know, hey, we were booming in the 70s, plateaued in the 80s, started bleeding in the 90s. 
one church, by the time they called us, they were down to 27 seniors. And they said, hey, we're going to close our doors. We're going to have to shut the church. And it was 191 years old. Now think about the spiritual legacy, you know, almost 200 years wow. of faithful gospel witness to this community. And, um, and we said, so why are you calling us? And they said, well, we're interested. Would we be able to become part of Liquid? And these were 27 seniors, mostly in their 60s and 70s. I said, well, have you been to Liquid Church? And they said, oh, yes, we hate your music. <laughs> <laughs> they were super, I was like, well, I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> and I said, just respectfully, then, you know, why are you reaching out? And they said, because you're baptizing our grandchildren. Mm. And they said, you know what? The culture changed, but we didn't. We made that classic kind of mistake of mistaking not just the message, but thinking the methods also had to be closed handed. And so we never changed. But what God did through that, I'm telling you, Alan, it is a powerful current that is rippling through North America. Um, those 27 seniors are my heroes. Uh, that's who I want to be when I grow up. Um, incredibly, in 30 days, they actually working, you know, they're mainly boomers and builders, the greatest generation. And here they are meeting with millennials and Gen Z. Well, they had a congregational vote and they voted to unanimously donate their building, their property, their parsonage, their assets, their missionaries, all to liquid. Now, we were six years old as a church. So, of course, you know, most church planners know, right? We got lots of vision. We got energy, momentum, and people. But man, in terms of assets, we got a couple of road cases, a roll of duct tape, and a stick of gum holding it all together. Yeah, the exact <laughs> opposite of what they have, which ends up being a ton of stability, gray hairs, um, and property that's paid off, and you guys brimming with vision, just looking for those ministry hubs. What a great fit. Yes. Well, it wasn't just about the property. That's what people I think sometimes miss to go to your question, why don't mergers work? What we realized here is this is a generational opportunity, like once in a lifetime. There are five generations right now in the church. That's never happened before in history. Builders, boomers, myself, Gen X, then the millennials, Gen Z. And so I think the world is so hungry to see these partnerships where people are actually benefiting from the wisdom of the other generation. So for example, as a six-year-old church, that's great. We have all these young adults and momentum, but guess what? The number one request of millennials is, I want a mentor. <laughs> yep. I need a spiritual father, a spiritual mother who have some miles on the odometer walking with Jesus to show me, man, what does an intact marriage look like? I never saw one growing up. How do I discern my, my calling in life, my purpose? I don't want to just make money. I want to have purpose. And so the beauty of it was on the outside, we renovated this you know, church together. It was 191 years old. God did something pretty special. Their last service, they had 27 people. On opening day, we had over 1,000 new families. Wow. Um, and it became the fastest growing campus in our church's history. But it was, to me, that's just the external. The internal soul of Liquid Church shifted. Because all of a sudden, we're a six-year-old church plant with all this energy and vision and young people. We became 197 years old. And now we're tapping into the, the collective wisdom, the spiritual maturity, the depth. We were able to have a marriage mentoring program begin because we're drawing now on the faithful witness of this previous generation. And it was just so healthy for us because, quite honestly, like, you know, the millennial enthusiasm needs to be tempered a little bit with the humility to recognize like, hey, the church didn't start like when Hillsong Music came out. Um, this, <laughs> this has been going on. They've been here for 191 years. 
okay? And they're sacrificing in incredible ways you'll know nothing. So we're, we're not here because we're smarter, better, younger. We're standing on the shoulders of our spiritual fathers and mothers. And so with that kind of ethos of humility, that humble posture, it was just like the most beautiful thing. We, we washed the, the feet of those senior saints on stage to model what it means to honor those who've gone before us. And they are involved in the ministry to this day. All 27 seniors actually stayed at the church and they're part of a uh, liquid. I love it. That word honor is so important, Tim. I think so many uh, young leaders, especially with, with much vision, but not much backdrop of history, um, simply don't honor leaders who have come before and wonder, why can't I find anybody older who wants to mentor me or, or hang out with me? Um, I've been very convicted about that in the past and say, how do we be both honest and honoring at the same time? That's a hard, that's a tough, a tough tension and maybe a conversation for a whole nother podcast on mergers and love that that piece of your story. The next one, you talk about guilt-free giving as a stream. And I want to drill down to your personal story on this. Describe your initial fear of asking for money. You had some baggage, Tim. Where'd that come from? Oh, yeah. Well, I grew up in a church where they put a thermometer on stage, <laughs> a giant <laughs> thermometer for capital campaigns. And here's the vision. We want to pave the parking lot and restripe it. And so we would love you because some of you aren't really pulling your weight. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad, but <laughs> I, I just have a little bit of, you know, uh, you know, PTSD kind of from like growing up in that kind of like, hey, you need to tithe, do your duty. So it's all about duty. Or... You know, guys, if everybody here who drove a car could help contribute, so it's ringing the guilt note, which to me, as I read the Gospels, it's the opposite of grace, right? You know, grace is like, hey, no strings attached. It should come out of joy. And so I'd never really been taught generosity. I'd been taught the mechanics of, you know, hey, we need to pay the electric bills. But guess what? Newsflash. People don't give to need. (laughs) They give to vision. Yep. Guys, we want to get bring clean drinking water to a thousand children this Christmas. Who's in? Well, we find actually incredibly people will give above and beyond. They'll give sacrificially when they see the impact on the poor. And so the shift for us is we lead the way in generosity. I mean, it's just we're blessed. And it hasn't been that way from the very beginning. I talk in the book about how there were years where we had to tighten our belts and we have to lay off staff and we're eating the carpet. We are on our faces praying because we made mistakes in our staffing structure or, you know, we overpaid for a rental facility at a new prop at, at a, a new campus. But God kind of course corrected us because I said, hey, leaders go first, right? And so we got to lead the way in generosity. And so we just kind of systematically, my wife, Colleen, and I began giving, you know, half a percent, 1% more than our 10% that we started at every year. We want to go up. And as we began leading the way in generosity and really casting vision for our people, at the end of the day, it's all daddy's money. <laughs> this yep. is like literally, it's like we're playing with house money. It's all the father's money. Yep. And I think he blesses us in proportion to how we sacrifice for the poor. So yes. it's not plant, a, you know, it's not the prosperity gospel, plant a seed so you can get a better, you know. Right, it's exactly. Not that. It's like, how can we feel the pinch? How can we actually inconvenience ourselves? So that other people can, man, just even have the basics, a clean drink of water. Um, And when we do that, we just find that God puts his hand of favor on our house. And it's just been incredible to to see that. And again, we talk about this and and show in the book, you know, again, another dozen churches who are doing incredible things. Um, Passion Church is one out in Minnesota that I've learned from. 
Um, they did something pretty incredible. They did started an initiative called School Lunch Matters. And they said, you know what? Um, for all the low-income families who don't qualify for free school lunch, they found that students were getting a stigma in middle school. Uh, you get your hand stamped if you can't afford lunch. You have to sit at a special table. And you get white bread and sun butter. You can't have the lasagna everybody else is having. And they found that students were even actually being prohibited from playing extracurricular sports or even going to like prom because their parents couldn't afford school lunch. And so they said, you know what? Our church is going to wipe out the school lunch debt of everybody in the Twin Cities. And they did it. Wow. And we just did that here at Liquid. We took one Sunday's offering. We said, guys, 100% of what you give today, we're going to cancel the school lunch debt of over 4,000 families. And it was just incredible. Again, right? The news media picks up on these things because they're like, who does that? What are the strings attached? What's your political statement? And we're like, um, Jesus said, when you feed the hungry, we're feeding him. So yep. God's been generous to us. We want to be generous to our community. Yeah, And it's man. powerful. I'm telling you, generosity, man, it is the most powerful, one of the most powerful currents we're seeing God use. Oh, I, I love that. And people are just looking for that, right? People want to give to something bigger than themselves. And we need to provide platform and opportunity for them to do that. I saw that post um, and I reposted it actually on Lunch Debt. I mean, think about what a practical thing that is. And by the way, that, that could be any of us. I could forget to pay my kid's bill um, at school and my That's kid right. could be stigmatized and going, oh man, you know, my bad on that. So man, I, I love yeah. that. What is good news to our community? What are the cracks of brokenness? Um, and I see you guys wanting to enter the, into those cracks and spaces. Um, that sixth stream you talk about, developing a robust leadership culture in your church. So I want to get practical, uh, maybe even a little vulnerable with you. As the founder, it's hard because you're in the midst of everything. I mean, you're doing the PowerPoint late at night before you preach early. You're setting up chairs. Uh, yeah. you've, you've graduated out of some of those roles and you've taken on some new stresses and burdens and, and pressures, but founders often hold on really tight. And so what are some of those shifts that you had to make in order to get out of the way so that staff culture of leadership development could really yeah. thrive? Yeah, I think for a few years, I suffered from founder's disease right? Any entrepreneur listening knows what that is. It's your baby. And, um, you know, you, you kind of, you're involved in basically every new project and program. It has to come across your desk for review. And, you know, I, I remember when I was like, I don't like Comic Sans font on the slides, <laughs> yeah. which by the way is, is a sin. Uh, <laughs> or, or here's the color of the outreach t-shirt. But what happened is I didn't realize as the senior pastor, I was setting myself up. I was the leadership lid. And so I kind of became this bottleneck in our church as it was growing. Now, I wasn't on a power trip, but as founder, I was just used to having my fingerprints on every new initiative. And what happened is, as the Lord began drawing more people and our church grew in size, I just had to admit, man, I've got to give up to go up. You know, my Hispanic hair actually had to grow smaller. I, I, I had that moment, I remember realizing, not only can I no longer control everything happening in every, each ministry, I don't even know about certain things. So like, why are these people here at the church? Oh, they're doing this event. I'm like, I didn't even know about it. Yeah. And it kind of felt like a loss in that, it, you know, I'm very hands-on, always very available, you know, for people, triage, pastoral care. But my job now is to kind of get them, um, you know, to the right people. And the key was really empowering the laity, realizing that Ephesians kind of everybody gets to play, right? It's the job of pastors and teachers to equip the saints 
to do the work of ministry. So there was this moment I talk about in the book as, as the lead pastor where I was just getting in the way of good ministry and kind of had to like, you know, not just eat humble pie, but say, you know what? There are gifted people in the pews and many of them are not pastors or even in um, vocational ministry. They're marketplace leaders who are going to be better at this than I am. And when we uncorked that, it was like the floodgates opened. Our volunteer culture was revolutionized. So in the book, I, I talk about our worst year. Uh, in 2010, I take responsibility for it. But we had almost 38% turnover on our staff, meaning one out of more than one out of every three people left the organization. And we're like, how is that possible? The Holy Spirit's flowing. People are being baptized in the name of Jesus. And we're burning people out. But I had to take a good look and say, what kind of culture, right? Because the, you know, the leader, you know, culture eats vision for lunch, right? It trumps everything. It was not a healthy staff dynamic. And so we kind of talk in the book about how we really took a radical um, sickle, uh, you know, to our calendar of events to alleviate the churn and realize we've got to create a healthy culture that people are attracted to, that they grow closer to Jesus, not just because they work here, but actually, you know what? It's not about just discipling those in the pews, but how are we growing uh, people who with deeper spiritual roots with healthier soul care practices? What what are so, Tim, let's let's drill down right there. What are some practical things you did when you had that aha moment? We have too much churn, maybe our leaders are running too hard. What are a couple practical things you did to turn the ship? So we slowed down the RPMs of the ministry calendar. Um, you know, Liquid, again, it's an exciting place to work. People you know, kind of walk into our broadcast campus. They're like, this doesn't look like church. It looks like Google. You know, there's like people zipping down the hall, you know, on, on Razor scooters and, you know, all sorts of fun stuff. And so we like new. We like innovation. Um, what's something we haven't tried before? But the backside of innovation is a little bit of this kind of ADHD um, you know, spirit that it's like, well, you know, okay, we're done with Easter now on to baptisms. Well, what if we go down and have church on the beach? And, you know, you're always in, in people's heads start spinning. And so we realized we were fatiguing our staff. So here we are on Sundays preaching Sabbath, that it's actually God created you to rest. And yet we're cranking up the RPMs behind the scenes to figure out creative ways to preach about the Sabbath. They're like a little bit of irony, potentially hypocrisy there. Mm. <laughs> And so I had to take responsibility for that because that's a little bit of my personality. Uh, I'm, an, I got, I'm a guy who loves ideation and new ideas and ADHD. And I realized, you know what? That was a lack of even my own paying attention to my interior life. And so as goes kind of the soul of the leader goes the soul of the organization. And so I kind of, you know, I'd talk a little bit about my early brush with burnout where we took a machete to my schedule and said, you know what? We're not going to go as fast, but we're going to go farther together. I know that's something you kind of preach at Stay Forth Designs. Um, you know, you can go fast, but you're going to go alone, and you're going to have a lot of people on and off that bus. Yep. And unfortunately, there are going to be some people who feel like, I got run over by the bus. Yeah. But if you want to go together as a team, it's going to take longer, but it's going to be more sustainable in the long run. So we really began hiring around those values. Um, for us, you know, as a staff, our values are trust, excellence, but then also humility gaining kind of self-awareness of the shadow side of leadership. I really appreciated you sharing that in the book because many times we like to conveniently leave that out and we like to not talk about the dark years or not talk about 
um, the uncomfortable things. But those are the things I find leaders wanting to talk about, whether it's individual coaching, consulting with the team of, okay, it's unhealthy. How do we make some tweaks and course correct in the process? Um, Tim, talk about your personal health for a second. It is no small deal to continue to to lead and steward at the level that you are, um, to write a book, to speak, to go on podcasts like this. Um, oh yeah, and continue to steward that. Oh yeah, and continue to be a present dad and husband. Um, what are some of the practices that you've developed to continue to stay healthy so you can lead for the long haul? Well, the Sabbath is essential. I mean, that that is something, again, I talk about in the book. It was something that I see as a very tender yet severe mercy from the Lord you know, two years in where I talk about, you know, my wife kind of, you know, we had two children under the age of five and I'm out every night of the week, you know, cause it's exciting. Hey, it's a new church and it's our first Easter, or our first small groups campaign or whatever. But I was kicking the can down the road and she was like, I need you to be present, Tim, emotionally present, not checking your phone, all that. And I had good intentions, but I just did, I didn't see it. And so I had this, you know, really, gosh, this was a powerful moment. I, 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 it still gives me a little bit of shakes when I think about it. But I, I came in, you know, of course, late to dinner. And there's my wife at home sitting in the living room on the couch. And she has mascara coming down. She's been crying. Uh-oh. I, I thought something happened to one of our kids, Alan. Uh, you've met Colleen. She's a super high capacity woman. You know, not typically, that's unusual. She's not a crier. And I was like, I thought something happened with the kids. And so I dropped my book bag. I run over and I'm like, honey, honey, what is it? What, what, what is it? And through, you know, she's sobbing and through sniffles, she says, I feel like you love her more than me. I was like, what? You love her more than me? I said, love who? What, like, what? like, is she accusing me of an affair? Yeah. What's going and on? She said that church, that stupid church. And Alan, it was like, I heard a rooster crowing in the distance hmm. because I swore I would never be that guy who sacrifices his marriage on the altar of ministry. And yet here it was. Ministry was my mistress and my wife was calling me out on it. I was in love with the church and it's the church should, every pastor should love his church. But at the end of the day, the church is Jesus's bride. <laughs> Colleen is Tim's. And so I kind of had that backwards for a season, but it was very early on and I praise God for it because I was in my early thirties rather than waking up in my, you know, forties or, you know, down the road, in my fifties and say, what the heck happened? That's right. Yeah. What <laughs> we reached all these people and I lost my kids and I lost my wife. What a gift. Um, even though it hurts and you hate to hurt Colleen in that moment, what a gift because that's not the end of your story. That's the beginning of a beautiful season. You and I have talked a lot about then the limits, the boundaries that you put in place, um, the margin that, that you had to create there. And I absolutely love um, to go back to those moments and say, like, this was paradigm shifting in that moment. So I love that, Tim. And, and if you're listening, having one of those moments, this is not the end of your story. It could be the beginning Amen. of a beautiful season in your life. Man, Tim, we could talk for hours. And you know what? Offline, we will continue to uh, in this next season. But um, I just wanted to hear what, what's something you're learning in the last few months, something fresh that you're learning right now? Mm. Well, you know, I think just related to that conversation about burnout, um, you know, when we go back, you know, whatever, 10 years ago, we took a radical machete to my schedule. We renegotiate our family rhythms, um, you know, said no to a lot of things, disappoint, le I learned to disappoint a lot of people. And so it's been very healthy for us for 10 years. But now we're on this threshold of entering a new season 
Our daughter's a senior, so she's going to, you know, presumably go, be going away in the fall to college. And, uh, you know, I just had this book come out and, you know, meeting incredible leaders like you. And so there's all these different opportunities for new relationships and traveling to places. And so I've been kind of like, that sounds awesome. Yeah, let's go to Colorado. I want to meet with Alan and, you know, uh, you know, be on a podcast or whatever it is. So my, my calendar now, it's starting to get encroached on. I'm noticing my margin getting eaten up more. And just to be totally make this live, I'm like, ooh, I'm watching my tachometer on my dashboard. It's getting into the red zone, getting a little hot right now. <laughs> yep. And it's funny because I'm starting to have some of those internal feelings that I'm like, I remember this from 10 years ago. And so I, I think, you know, a lot of times, you know, I know you, you and Julie teach the Enneagram. I'm a three, you know, a lot of hard charging leaders are, they love vision and action and that's wonderful. But I think I'm going to battle with this, the temptation to allow myself to burn out, to like, let's set ourselves on fire and charge the gates of hell with a squirt gun. You know, I'm going to battle that for most of my life. And so I think there's kind of like, I, I'm just having this awareness and this may be very uncooked. Um, but I'm like, oh, this is different. I've been here before. I can feel it. I know what some of the warning signs are, but how do I renegotiate this now in this new season? Because my marriage is in a wonderful place. My, my kids are going to college and yet there's more responsibility and opportunity. So I, I'm feeling like I'm entering the season of discernment now for kind of the, the next lap around the track. Um, you know, as I kind of, you know, in my you know, mid forties and I'm like, you know, I'm not a the young guy in the room anymore. I'm just a middle-aged guy, but I want to be in this for the long haul and finish well, you know, closer to Jesus, to my wife, my children, and not just kind of going with the flow, which honestly is just a burnout culture in ministry. Mm. Tim, it's been a gift to get to know you and Colleen. You guys are awesome. Um, God continues to write a unique story there with Liquid Church. Guys, would encourage you to pick up a copy of Liquid Church. I think you'll be encouraged. I have to admit, though, Tim, that I did laugh just a little bit when I thought about your dehydration story heading down into the Grand Canyon. Uh, and then it was like, oh, man, they almost died. Um, but I'm just cracking up thinking about uh, you know, Jersey boy going down, but you did it. You made it to yeah, the bottom. Yeah. You got completely out. You live to right. tell the tale today. Uh, but man, I just love, uh, how the, the stories <laughs> infused, you know, personally that of the church and of many other churches that absolutely are going for it in this season and are seeing God do some incredible things. So Tim, thanks, man. It has been a gift to be in relationship with you this year and, uh, Likewise. blessings upon all of what you're doing, my friend. Thanks. Alan. love you, brother. Man, I love having conversation with Tim and hearing about the growth and the life of their church, some of the decisions that they are making in the process. Some new and exciting things are, are also on the way for them. So I just want to leave you with one question here at the end of this episode. What fresh new thing is God trying to speak to you about? What fresh new thing is God trying to speak to you about? What strikes me about Tim's story and the story of Liquid is so many of these things, in fact, most of them are unexpected. They just didn't see them coming, but they were crazy enough to try them out. God wants to speak fresh things to us and for us to take our next steps. Guys, we don't believe that if you're going to lead, that you have to burn out. We don't believe that you are going to be drowning in stress and anxiety and overwhelm if you are going to continue to lead in this age, but you're going to have to be intentional. We want to keep having these conversations about what it looks like to lead healthy in an age that is not healthy, to lead right side up in a world that seems upside down. 
Guys, it is possible to keep leading for the long haul and not lose your soul in the process. We love hearing feedback on the podcast. I'm sure you love this interview with Tim. And we drop an episode every Tuesday and Thursday. So we'll catch you on the next one. So long.